We are continuing in our study this morning of the Ten Commandments. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, I believe you can find that on page 77. As you turn there, let let me remind us all that it is always tempting in any passage of Scripture, it is always tempting to look for rules to follow so that God will love us. So that the bad things that we've done or are doing or know that we're going to do later, so that the bad things that we do will be balanced out. Even as Christians, we are often, to steal a phrase, recovering Pharisees. In the same way that an alcoholic is never cured of the addiction, they are merely in recovery. So also we are all in recovery from our legalism, our Pharisaism. We default back to a desire to earn our status before the Lord with our best behavior. We are strongly tempted to believe that Jesus' blood, as we heard this morning in Sunday school, we are so strongly tempted to believe that Jesus' blood got us to a clean slate, a neutral place, which we can then fill up with our work so that we'll be righteous. Now, that is a foolish, foolish way to think, but here we are, all the same, still doing it. Now, in one sense, this temptation is nowhere stronger than when we look at the law of God. It is literally a list of do's and don'ts. It is so tempting for us to make it all about what we can do to earn favor. And yet, any genuine study of the law, Any study of the law that includes digging into the wide-ranging implications, the expectations that come along with the law, the full breadth of it, any genuine study of the law is the single best, most valuable thing for taking our desire to earn our place with God and killing it completely. It is only the most superficial understanding of the law that could lead me to pride that could make me think that I could keep the law if I just tried hard enough. And almost any level of actual study of the law of God proves quickly that it is so far beyond our ability to keep. But it's a hard message that God requires perfection and that we cannot meet the perfection that He requires. We rebel against that message. So we need His grace. So let's ask the Holy Spirit together uh, to speak His grace to us through His Word this morning. If you're able, please stand while I pray and remain standing as I read from Exodus 20. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to Your Word because we flounder without it. We try to make up our own rules, our own ways that life should go. We try to invent what will be good based on what we like and dislike, and we fail miserably. And we are miserable. And so, Lord, we come to your word because only in it can we find life. Only in it can we find peace with you, rest from our striving. We pray because we are so prone to reject it. We pray, Lord, that you would speak your grace to us through this, your word. Glorify your name as we read it and preach it this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I said I'm reading from Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to start at verse 1, and we'll read all the way through uh, the verse, uh, verse 15 that we're going to focus on this morning. This is God's Word. 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast covenant-keeping love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. Robert Cialdini, and I'm certain I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but we'll just go with it. Uh, He is a researcher, an expert on the theories of persuasion and how persuasion works, conducted an experiment at the Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona. See, the National Park had a problem made it clear in warning signs all over the park, here's the text of the sign, your heritage is being vandalized every day by theft. Losses of petrified wood amount to 14 tons every year, mostly one small piece at a time. Now that sign plainly appealed to the visitor's sense of moral outrage, and Caldini wanted to know if this appeal was actually effective or not. So he and some colleagues ran an experiment. On some of the trails, they posted a sign, uh, or excuse me, they seeded various trails throughout the forest, throughout the the park there, with small pieces of petrified wood, ripe for the picking, right? Uh, And then on some of the trails, they posted a sign warning not to steal. On others, they left no sign. What was the result? The trails with the warning sign had nearly three times more theft than the ones without. How could that be? How does that work? Caldini concluded that the park's warning sign, which was designed to send a moral message, sent perhaps a different message than they intended. Something along the lines of, wow, the petrified wood is going fast. I better get me some now. Or maybe 14 tons a year. Uh, One little tiny piece isn't going to matter much in the scope of 14 tons. How much is enough? How much is enough? People generally steal because they don't have enough, or they think they don't have enough, or they think even if I have enough now, the supply is going to run out, so I better get some now and stock up so that I don't run out later. We all remember the great toilet paper fiasco of 2020, right? Of course it is. So how much is enough? What is 
enough. There was a study done several years ago, well, a couple of decades ago now, uh, that asked people in various walks of life a series of questions that was designed to determine what amount of money in their mind was sufficient, would make them comfortable, would simplify their lives, would make them no longer be stressed out about finances. The results were incredibly consistent, excluding those in the absolute most poor, the, 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 the deepest poverty who are simply struggling to feed themselves, excluding that group. Consistently across the board, the answer was 10% more than I have right now. Whatever the family situation, whatever the job situation, whatever the income bracket, again, outside the absolute lowest, consistently we think we'll be sufficiently happy if we could just have a little bit more, 10% more than what I have right now. But Of course, if we were to get that raise, that extra 10%, that bonus, what would happen? We would find our appetites our fiscal challenges increasing to match our new fiscal situation. The reality is, if enough is your goal, counterintuitively, if enough is your goal, there will never be such a thing as enough. No matter how much you have, it will never be enough if enough is the goal. This, the Eighth Commandment, is almost painfully simple. Literally translated, it simply says, no stealing, period. Not a lot of wiggle room there. It is also, historically speaking, the most broadly accepted commandment in human history. Every human culture that we have a record of, without exception, every human culture that we have a record of had some form of this law in their law codes. It is even more universally accepted than the command not to murder. Every single culture accepts this. Even the most totalitarian, communistic governmental systems, think Soviet Russia or, or mainland China, for example, in even those most communistic systems, there was and is an enshrining the basic understanding of the principle of private property. At a minimum, while the state owns everything to share out with those whom they deem worthy, once they've shared it, you don't take what somebody else got. That's theirs. What's yours is yours. Do not take that which belongs to another. We read this, and it seems simple and obvious. But as we've said, there's a couple of general rules for understanding the commandments. First, as we've said, the law of categories. Each commandment doesn't merely command or prohibit an individual specific action, but that action stands in for a whole range, a whole category that are connected and related to that. Uh, as it's, at its narrowest, the word for steal here refers to carrying something away as if by stealth, cat burglary, we might say. But the idea obviously includes all conventional types of theft. Burglary, obviously breaking into a home and taking something without somebody's knowledge. Uh, but it also includes robbery, taking something directly from a person using violence or the threat of violence. It includes larceny, borrowing and not returning. It includes hijacking, shoplifting, pickpocketing, purse snatching. You know, that list just keeps going on and on. 
Obviously, all of that is included in the idea of stealing here, no stealing. But it also includes other more esoteric types of theft, embezzlement, extortion, racketeering, schemes, Ponzi schemes, pyramid schemes, multi-level marketing schemes, on and on. Junk bonds even. Some might actually include literally everything done on Wall Street ever. But that might include at least a dose of covetousness, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. So hold that thought. We are, as humans, we are incredibly inventive when it comes to separating a fool from his money. We come up with all of these new plans. And while we universally accept that theft is wrong because we don't want somebody else taking my stuff, we also elevate the art of taking someone else's stuff for myself of skirting the edge of the illegal without actually crossing the line into it and raising the idea of, well, it's really only illegal if you get caught to high art form. We say things like caveat emptor, buyer beware, as if the responsibility for ensuring the uprightness of the deal or the sale rests entirely in the watchfulness of the buyer. Because the seller, it is assumed, is going to do everything he can think of to squeeze every last penny out of this deal. Even if it means using shady business practices, we'll call them. I mean, think about it. The phrase used car salesman has come to mean someone who will do or say anything to make the sale regardless of truth, regardless of equity, regardless of anything. More succinctly, used car salesman means liar and thief. And it's generally derided as a profession, right? Theft is universally accepted to be wrong. And yet, everyone does it. It is incredibly common. Hotels are constantly having to replace items taken from rooms. And I'm not talking about the little mini bottles of shampoo and conditioner and whatnot. Those are designed to be taken. If you don't take them, they actually have to throw them away, just for health and safety reasons. Not talking about that. Hotels have to replace things like towels and irons and clocks and coffee makers and art from the walls and lamps. I used to work at a hotel. It's astounding the stuff that people will take. People take gardening supplies from nurseries and lumber from construction sites after hours. You drive by a construction site that, that everybody's gone home for the day and where's the portable generator? Strung up from the crane, right? Because if you don't string it up, somebody's going to back up a truck and run off with it. James Emery White tells the story about uh, his visit to the Eagle and Child pub in Great Britain. That's the, the pub that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, the rest of the Inklings group, would uh, meet uh, on a regular basis. So it's become kind of a pilgrimage site, the bird and the baby. Uh, he remembers... Uh, White remembers the manager lamenting that the tourists would steal the menus as souvenirs of their trips. He, he had gone to great expense to print up really nice menus for the restaurant because it's still a working restaurant, uh, and then had also run off copies that could be taken by souvenir hunters at no cost, and they would still steal the good ones. They would even steal the memorabilia off the wall. Letters from Lewis or Tolkien, uh, awards, plaques, whatever, uh, and uh, that he had intentionally put up replicas instead of the originals because he knew they were going to get taken. 
And in reflecting on this situation with so much of these things stolen, the manager said this. He said, what gets me is that all these people who come in for Lewis are supposed to be Christians, right? The irony is bitter. The manager of the Eagle and Child pub holds Christians and, one would surmise, Christianity itself in disdain because of the behavior of Christians who flock to pay homage to Lewis and Tolkien. Many who go there wouldn't be caught dead having a pint in that pub because it's beer, but they got no problem stealing the menus and the stuff off the walls. Everyone understands that these are crimes, that they are not right, and yet they just keep happening, don't they? Because I wanted it. Or I needed it more than he did, so it's okay. It's justified. Or he didn't look out well enough, so I'm, it's fine. You know, he, he should have guarded it better. These are simple things, and they're things that we wholly agree with, right? Stealing is wrong. Don't take stuff. And yet, we still struggle not to take what isn't ours, even when it brings disrepute on Christ. Even when it slanders Christ's reputation, we still struggle with it. And the law of categories extends this even further, right? Making false claims against government programs like welfare, disability, or Social Security, or you know, any of the thousand of other programs, is theft by citizens from the government. Now, it might seem like that's more acceptable, right? Because it's just a faceless bureaucracy. Nobody's really getting hurt there. It's still theft. It is still taking what isn't rightfully yours. On the other hand, writing laws and court procedures with the intention of maximizing fines and fees, revenue for the city or the county, wasteful spending, boondoggles to buy votes from the home district, deficit spending with no intention or even hope of repaying the debt. All of those are theft by the government. Theft by employees against the company is, would certainly include embezzlement and the like, but it also includes helping yourself to office supplies, pens and paper and whatnot. Padding expense reports, personal copying and calling on the company's phones and equipment. I mean, assuming the company hasn't said that that's fine. Far more commonly than those things, though, is theft of time. Failing to put in a full day's work. You know, yes, coming in late, leaving early, obviously, but also idling away your time while you're at work. Facebook, internet surfing, uh, personal shopping, even playing computer games or phone games. We carry this massive computer in our pockets. Phone games while on company time is all a theft of time. And companies steal from their employees, too. Demanding longer hours than was initially agreed. Reorganizing, euphemistic for filing pe firing people, reorganizing to maximize revenue while asking the remaining people to do the jobs of all of the people that just got fired in addition to the people, to their, their original jobs. <coughs> Excuse me. Squeezing as much as possible from that turnip before it's fully used up. We see that communism, that's obviously, you know, 
conglomerating everything into one pot and calling it owned by everybody but managed by a few. Obviously, that is forbidden. But the way that we've done capitalism is also forbidden, which makes profit the only goal. The only value is getting as much as you can for as long as you can, no matter who it hurts and no matter what it costs. The list goes on and on. Lending money at exorbitant rates. Some, some personal credit cards are as high as 29% interest. 29. And it would be higher except the government has imposed that that's the highest you can, you're legally allowed to go. And it's not just personal stuff, personal credit. International banks make loans to smaller countries that effectively leave the smaller country in debt peonage permanently, forever, that it's never going to get paid off. On the other hand, buying on credit with no intention of repaying the debt. Insurance fraud. Deliberate cost overruns. Deliberately overestimating, or excuse me, underestimating so that you get the contract with the intention of just, you know, running past the estimate and, and who cares? Willy-nilly submit the, the actual expenses later. Possibly most common in our culture, theft of intellectual property. Using illegal copies of software, unlawful duplication of music and videos and books, using, engaging in plagiarism, using somebody else's thoughts as your own, as if they were yours, without giving credit. More and more and more and more, far more than we have time or wit to list. It is all theft. But even all of that doesn't cover the full range of biblical understanding of theft. John Calvin said it this way. He said, Not only are they thieves who secretly steal the property of others, but those also who seek gain from the loss of others, who accumulate wealth by unlawful practices and are more devoted to their own private advantage than to equity. That stings a little, doesn't it? more devoted to their own private advantage than to equity. We've been studying Isaiah on Wednesdays, and it has become real obvious even in the first few chapters that the Lord hates, hates the ways that the wealthy steal from the poor, steal land specifically, but really the means to provide for their families. The wealthy and powerful took then and have taken every day since then and continue to take now, take whatever they want, twisting the legal code to do so or just ignoring it outright because they can without any thought to the cost to anybody but themselves. Isaiah is hardly the only prophet to talk about this. Uh, Micah and Amos cover it pretty exhaustively, but really all of the prophets touch on this rapaciousness by the wealthy and powerful against the poor and oppressed. According to Calvin, it is not simply theft to take something, but it is also theft to be more devoted to my private advantage than I am to the equity, the good functioning of the community, the covenant community. Luther said that we are all guilty of violating this commandment whenever we, quote, take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing that results in loss to him. Any sort of dealing in which I take advantage of my neighbor that results in loss to him. I am my brother's keeper. As one commentator asked, How much business, private or corporate, 
how much business fails to measure up to this standard? I think we would have to answer all of it, basically. There might be a couple of places, but basically all business, because that's the way it's set up. The only thing that matters is the bottom line. Doesn't matter who you got to run over to get there, the bottom line, profit for investors, profit for the company is the only standard in our society. But that is not God's standard. In God's standard, what's yours is yours. And I am responsible to God to guard what is yours against theft, even from myself. No stealing. Now, so far we've been focused on the various ways that people, we, take stuff that isn't ours, but Scripture includes another type of theft entirely. We're going to spend more time on this aspect of the things next week, uh, next time, but the short version is that when God gives you something, it is for you, but it is for you to share, to give to others. If God has blessed you with abundance, He has done so so that you will bless those who He has not given an abundance to. He gives what He has given to you. He has given to you as a steward for the good of the whole community. Paul could say that he was in debt to the Gentiles. Because, not because the Gentiles had loaned him something, but because God had given him something to give to the Gentiles. And until he gave it to them, he was in debt. And the same is true for all of us. We like to think we own stuff. We like to think that we own stuff, that my car, that my books, that my stuff belongs to me, that my money is mine to do with as I see fit. On and on, we think we own stuff. And from a human perspective, that's true, right? You know, again, we've already said that God has established the principle of private ownership. That's what we've been talking about all morning. Don't take stuff that isn't yours. But the testimony of Scripture is that everything that exists belongs first and only to God. He created it, and after creating it all, He gave it, he gave it to Adam. Not in the sense of, here, this is yours now, go have a party, have fun but it more in the sense of, I am appointing you to manage these things for me in my place as I would manage them if I were managing them. They belong to me, Adam, but I want you to take care of them for me. What God has given to you or to me does not belong to us. It has been given into our care that we would use them as the Lord would have used them if he were the one standing here with it. God has decreed that we are to use the things that He has given us for our benefit, yes, but never for our selfish benefit. We make use of God's things as He would if He were the one standing here making the decision. And that's the key to understanding stewardship. We make decisions about our stuff based on what we think God would do with it. And that means taking care of things so that they don't fall into disrepair. It means not being wasteful of stuff or money or talent given to our care. It means working hard because time and energy are just as much the stuff that God has given us as the physical things are. And good stewardship means giving away what God has given into our care. 
As Americans, our approach to charitable giving, and before I say this, let me just be clear. I have no idea what any of you give. I've worked hard not to know that. So if the Holy Spirit pricks you about this, it's him, not me. I don't know. I don't have anybody particular in mind. Uh, generally speaking, this church is very generous. So, But the point is going to stand here. As Americans, our approach to charitable giving is usually along the lines of, I'll take care of myself. I'll do the things that I have to do, the things I need to do, and in fact, the things that I want to do. And if there's anything left over, I'll give that to God. I'll give that to charity. Or I'll consider giving it even. But the biblical principle of giving is that what we give to the Lord doesn't come from the leftovers of what God has given us. It comes from the first fruits. The first fruits, the first part of what God is giving, has given us is what we are to give away. We should be giving so much that we can't do things that we'd like to do because we've given the money away, given the time away. Giving should cramp your style. What we plan to give should be the first item in the budget and the last item cut out of the budget. And usually that's the reverse. The reality is that we have to pay for things like food and clothing. We, we have to survive, and God has given us financial resources to do that. We should. But which food we buy, what clothing we buy, where we buy our clothing can make a dramatic difference in the resources that we have available to give. And that's the essence of good stewardship, planning ahead, choosing what you buy and where you buy it so that you are able to be generous with what the Lord has given you. The essence of good stewardship and part of the importance of this commandment. As we said before, every commandment that ostensibly addresses an outward action, like stealing, also addresses inward attitudes, a spiritual condition of the heart. So what spiritual condition is being addressed in this commandment? How is theft sin against God in addition to being sin against your fellow man, your neighbor? How does no stealing address a spiritual condition? Now, we could talk about any range, our whole range of things, but remind us of a couple of things first. God is both sovereign and good. One of the descriptive names of God in the Old Testament is God the provider, the God who provides, right? God knows our needs, and He has designed a provision for them long before we had any idea we were going to have a need. Every time I take something that, done, that God didn't give to me, every time I take something from somebody else, I have first failed to trust God's provision for my life. I have said, either to, I've said to God either that I think he's wrong, that I will not survive what he has provided for me, that his plan is utterly insufficient, or that I think he just doesn't care about me, that if he were really good and if he were really sovereign, that he would have given me this thing that I want, that I just took for myself. It is doubting the identity and the character of God. It is doubting the love of God. It is a failure to trust his provision for me. But second, it is also a direct assault on his provision for you. Now, this should be obvious, right? If I take something from you, you no longer have access to it and can't use it for your own needs. 
what God has given to me is what he decided that I would need in his gracious provision for me. What God has given to you is what he decided that you would need in his gracious provision for you. And again, we're going to nuance that some more next week. Hold that thought. If I take some of what God gave you to supplement what God gave me, then I am doing violence to the provision that God gave to you. Micah refers to this when he's talking about the poor taking from, or the wealthy taking from the poor. He says, you are eating the flesh of my people. Because in taking their land, the rich had taken away their ability to feed themselves. You are eating the flesh of my people. Simply put, what God has given to you, I do not have the right to take for myself. And when I do take it for myself, it is an assault on the very character of God himself. Because I am doubting his sovereign ability to provide, and I am doubting his goodness, his good provision for me. It is a doubt of the character and nature of God. Our hearts want to provide all that we need and all that we want for ourselves. We hate depending on anyone else. We hate coming face to face with the fact that God's purpose, the fact of God's purpose, because it is so clear that we cannot provide for ourselves, cannot provide for our own needs that we are created to care selflessly for one another because that's how God cares for us. That's how God loves us, unstintingly, based not on our worthiness, but purely on our need. When Jesus went to the cross, when the Lord chose those whom He would redeem by Christ's blood, He didn't choose based on those who were worthy of that blood. Praise the Lord for that because none of us qualify. He chose based on our need and His own good pleasure. If you struggle to trust the Lord's provision, whether you've actually taken somebody's stuff or just thought how nice it would be to have that really shiny thing that you'd like over there that that other person has, whether you've actually taken stuff or just thought about it, if you struggle to trust the Lord's provision, His grace is for you. The blood of Christ on the cross covers even your greed, even your envy, even your hatred of how He provides, even your doubt of His character to provide. Your sin can't change His character. Praise the Lord for it. As you run to Him with your greed, with your envy, with your desire for that thing that you don't have that the other person has that you really want, as you run to Him with all of that stuff, as you ask Him to heal you of your distrust and your brokenness, He will. He will teach you. Now, it won't come the way that you want it to. He's not going to hand you a blank check and say, here you go. It will come in the opportunity to trust Him in hard areas. He will teach you more and more to trust His provision, even, especially, when it's hard. He will put you in situations where you have to trust Him. And then He will prove that He is trustworthy. Because at the end of the day, His provision 
is sufficient. If he has provided his son for us, taking our place on the cross, how much more will he give us those things that he knows that we need? Food and shelter and clothing and all of that stuff. His provision is sufficient. And he will lead you to trust him more because his love is overwhelming. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace given to us through your provision. We thank you for providing for our needs, even if it's not the things that we want to need. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to worship you fully with our stuff, whether it's financial or the stuff that we have or the talents, the time that you've given us. Cause us to worship you with all the talents, the time, the stuff that you've given us. Let us change our perspective, or rather you change our perspective, that we would see ourselves not as owners but as stewards. That you would make us generous and delightful, delighted to be so. That's not going to happen unless you restrain our sin and overwhelm the intentions of our hearts. So Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to do exactly that. Glorify your name in our stuff, in our generosity, in our care for each other. Glorify yourself in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.